drilling ice cores and looking at ice core records give us some of our very best, highest resolution, longest climate records. Like, they're just so powerful. It is a elucidating of the past to understand the future. Our natural world inspires and shapes us, so it's more critical than ever that we work to protect it. I'm Alex Honnold, professional rock climber and founder of the Honnold Foundation, and this is Planet Visionaries, a podcast in partnership with Rolex's Perpetual Planet Initiative and the Washington Post Creative Group. Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative support explorers, innovators, and visionaries who strive to protect our natural world. I'm proud to be bringing you some of their stories from the cutting edge of conservation. On this episode, I get to speak with Allison Crisitello, an ice core scientist gathering data from the highest mountain in Canada. Hi, Allison. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So cool. Uh, you want to just start, uh, introduce yourself? I'm an ice core scientist and a high altitude climber, and I'm the director of Canada's National Ice Core Lab. You're a high altitude mountaineer and you're a glaciologist. Which came first? I guess my love of the place and my love of exploring and and mountaineering in these places probably came first. My undergrad degree was in earth and environmental science, but at the time I didn't really know exactly what I was going to end up doing. But I did really love being in high, cold places and then started my way as a mountain guide. So I spent years as a ranger and it was years of doing that before I went back to grad school to kind of start studying these places that I love. So it seems like the love of the place came first, but then why pursue academics? Why not be a climbing ranger for your for your whole life or, or a professional climber or whatever? You know, why not? I was living and working in the same places year after year, and I was noticing all these landscape changes and and also relatedly changes in in sort of accidents, avalanche related accidents and things like this that were all all had to do with changing surface temperatures. And I'm I think I'm analytically inclined and I I just really wanted to understand these places that I loved working in better. It seemed like an obvious choice after a few years. That makes total sense. You're like, why just keep pulling people out of avalanches when you could study the underlying causes and, and get to the heart of it? What is an ice core and how does it work to take ice core samples? An ice core is just a cylinder of ice that you've drilled out of a glacier or an ice sheet or an ice cap. And, you know, as you drill down, you're looking farther back in time because it's just a record of, of snow deposition at that site. And the snow, you know, gets compacted as it gets compressed in and buried into fern and then ice. So as we drill down and down, we're, yeah, you're basically drilling back, back in time. Yeah. Yeah. For that matter, could you actually go a little deep, <laughs> go a little deeper in that? No, oh no pun God. intended, but, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a dad now, so it's a dad yeah. joke, but <laughs> like w when you're talking about taking ice samples, yeah. like how do glaciers form, how do ice caps form? Like what's the difference between those? Cause I think yeah. from someone that knows nothing about this, you just look at it and it's all just fields of snow. Okay. That's a, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the thing that sets glacial ice apart from just a field of snow or something else is basically that it moves under it, its own weight and gravity, it flows. So even though it seems like a solid, it's actually flowing. So the Greenland ice sheet, the ice sheets of Antarctica, snow is just accumulating over time, layer upon layer upon layer, and each layer is getting buried. And as it gets buried, it gets compressed. So the amount of air that's, you know, between those ice crystals, those snow crystals gets reduced. And then you reach some magical depth, bubble close off, um, which is where these little, <laughs> the little 
bits of air, the bubbles of air become separated from each other. Yeah, bubble clothes off. I like that. Yeah, you smirked. Those little bubbles are, you know, little snapshots of ancient atmosphere. Can you explain how ice core samples relate to climate? Like, how are those connected? They're very intertwined. Drilling ice cores and looking at ice core records give us some of our very best, highest resolution, longest climate records. They're just so powerful. It is a elucidating of the past to understand the future better. So understanding the past is the only way really for us to to get better at predicting what's to come. Well, it's hard to get ice cores to go back further than some number of thousands of years, right? A million. Okay, that's pretty far. Is that like (laughs) the deepest ice in Antarctica? Currently, there's a few countries sort of searching for million-year-old ice. So hundreds of thousands of years for polar ice cores is not crazy. Finding this really old, really old million-year-old ice is kind of a current endeavor in the ice core community. The, the holy grail of ice. There are longer records, I think, than people realize. Allison's ambition took her to explore the icy landscape of Canada's highest peak. So one of your expeditions was the Perpetual Planet Expedition to Mount Logan. Can you talk about that? Where, where's Mount Logan and, and what was that trip all about? Mount Logan is in Kluwani National Park in the Yukon. It's the highest peak in Canada, and it sits just over the Alaska border from Denali. And it's a absolutely enormous mountain when you compare it to other mountains that on paper look like they might be similar. It just has a huge base circumference, and it has an enormous summit plateau. The summit plateau that sits above 17,500 feet is 20 kilometers long. So all of these different things make it a good target for ice coring, whereas most high peaks outside of the poles wouldn't be. It gets an enormous amount of of snowfall per year, which offers a high-resolution climate record. But for obvious reasons, it's particularly difficult to drill an ice core in a place like that. What are those obvious reasons? Like, Why is it difficult to drill ice cores on the summit plateau of Logan? To work safely at those altitudes, you know, you can't just fly in and fly in with your drill and do your thing. Like you'd get sick and have to just fly down. We have to acclimatize slowly. So to pull this off, we had to climb Logan just the way that everyone climbs Logan, who's just there for a mountaineering objective. Yeah, boring um, mountaineers. They don't even have giant ice drills or anything. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> boring. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not easy. It's a big high cold mountain where you really feel the altitude. But now compared to maybe eight years ago, the first time I climbed it, the ice falls are especially lower down on the mountain are becoming much more complex to navigate. Because they're melting up? Because they're melting. There's a bit of an irony there that you're going up there to study paleoclimate, sort of changing climate, and the climbing route itself is getting harder because of the changing climate. <laughs> yeah. And then and it took years to plan the logistics for this, having sling loads of 300 pounds, because that's the payload at around 20,000 feet, of an enormous amount of drill equipment. Once we did safely make it to the summit plateau, three people had to be flown off for very serious altitude issues. So we were a tiny team drilling a 327 meter deep core on the summit plateau of Logan. It, it took almost two weeks to drill. Oh, and, That's and a it's long just time so high, high altitude. It's yeah. just so long. Everyone feels like garbage. And you, you're just slowly 
deteriorating. You just you just don't thrive at that kind of altitude. It's like you're just slowly no. wasting away. Yeah, everyone's just wasting away. And we ran the drill like 14 hours a day because I was trying to minimize how many days we were up there. But I mean, it was a little bit lose-lose. You either have really long days or you stay up there longer. And so why did you want a nice core sample from the summit plateau of Logan? Depending on where you drill an ice core, they also contain an enormous amount of valuable information that's more regional and local. So we have these really long-term, beautiful climate records from the poles. We don't have that from the non-polar regions. And Mount Logan has always thought to be a, a place where some of the oldest non-polar ice on Earth may sit. And the power in that is that, you know, I was describing its location on the Gulf of Alaska. It's like sticking out in the North Pacific. And so a really long-term climate record from there has the, the potential to tell us something about North Pacific climate variability. And there aren't that many places on Earth that have that potential. As someone who's also climbed a lot of mountains and thought about mountains a lot, it's interesting to think about mountains where there's that much snow and ice accumulation. You know, normally I'm thinking about the amount of rock, yeah. like where, where the exposed faces. I'm like, normally try to avoid the places with that much snow and ice accumulation. <laughs> totally. And so ultimately, how do you know that you've succeeded? Like, did you guys hit the bottom? Like, how do you finish? I would say we succeeded. However, I was really looking forward to smashing the drill into bedrock and we did not actually hit bedrock. We drilled in a spot that was deeper than we had anticipated from the radar data. So we ran out of everything. We ran out of drill cable. We ran out of all the supplies you need to cleanly store and then transport ice cores. We just, we ran out of everything you need. We actually drilled the very last meter, meter and a half of ice, and I left it in the core barrel and flew it out in the core barrel just to get that last meter. You really went to the, the <laughs> absolute limit. That, we that's did awesome. push it, yeah. So when you left Mount Logan, what did you actually have? Like, what is the ice core that you drilled? The ice core ended up 327 meters deep. So you basically drilled a thousand feet of ice out in, yep. in three foot segments, like cylinders of ice. Exactly. So three feet at a time, you drilled down a thousand feet. That's right. What do you do when you come back with like a thousand feet of ice core? The very first thing we do is, if you imagine a circle, which is looking at your ice core on end, we want to slice it up for all the oncoming analyses in a way that maximizes the use of each piece of core. And then the idea is also to preserve as much archive ice as you can for the future. We basically never use all of a core, if possible, because we want to save some for future scientists who will have capabilities that we can't even imagine now. So That totally makes sense. So we used about half of it. The other half is sitting here in the archive. Um, and the half that we did cut up, the image is useful itself in analyzing where particles are and melt layers and things like that, wind crusts. And so after we have a digital image of it, then we cut it up for each of the analyses. So the primary analyses that we've completed now are major ions like sodium and chloride and, and all these things that can tell us something about ocean conditions in the past. And then the center sort of most pristine stick of each core, that goes into a mass spec. And then we also look at stable isotopes, of course. So the two main isotopes of oxygen, which is how we reconstruct temperature in the past using ice cores. Allison's work helps us better understand our planet's ancient climate. The logistics for this whole expedition seem incredibly complex. 
Can you talk about the planning that went into it and what kind of support you had from the Perpetual Planet Initiative? This was definitely the most logistically complicated project I've ever led. And it is it seems like a miracle that everything <laughs> like that the ice worked. actually got back here <laughs> yeah. and then it worked. Yeah. It does sound um, like a miracle. Yeah, I truly didn't had no idea if we were gonna pull it off or not. But yeah, the truth is as well, obviously this isn't just me. This is a, a team of people, both here at my lab and also never could have done it without the support of Perpetual Planet. And another thing, as I kind of go along in my career, I become more and more interested in and I'm realizing more and more the importance and power of not just writing science papers and publishing science papers that other scientists read, but actually communicating to a broader audience the work that we are doing, because I think people do care. The National Geographic and Rolex Perpetual Planet Partnership supported this project from the beginning to the end, from the logistical and planning phases through the expedition itself. And they've supported it all the way through all of these ice core analyses. So really supporting the science as well, all the way to the end. That's certainly the way I think science should be done. It makes you sad to think of the poor scientist that gets their ice core to the freezer and then has to just sit there and look at it for years. <laughs> it's hard, like, yeah. <laughs> the other aspect of of their support that I can't imagine not having now in hindsight, but has been so spectacular is this, the storytelling component, which isn't something that has touched my work before. And it's been really incredible to be a part of. They came here when I was doing the core processing line, cutting it with my team. They came and filmed here and they've come into my home and filmed my family. So they, they're making a very full story. They've decided to tell a story about it. Inspiring the next generation of climate scientists is just as important to Allison as her research. What does the idea of a perpetual planet mean to you? The idea to me sort of has to do with sustainability, sort of bettering the planet for future generations and, and living and working in a sustainable way. And how do you see your work fitting into the idea of a perpetual planet? We're looking at the period of anthropogenic climate change on a certain area on Earth, and it's telling us things like how wildfires have increased in frequency and intensity. It's telling us about, you know, increases in surface temperature. It's telling us things about changing ocean surface conditions over the last few decades since humans have had an impact on the planet. So in that way, I do feel like the ice core science that I do has a sort of a direct link to issues of sustainability and bettering our, our future planet. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the, the nature of basic science, isn't it? That, you know, ultimately, when you broaden human knowledge, all you're really doing is helping helping the rest of humanity make more informed decisions and, you know, better understand our, our current situation. How do you see the the future of your work or the future of conservation? And I know that you, you co-founded Girls on Ice. Can you talk about yeah. what that does? Yeah, I guess Girls on Ice Canada was my own personal answer to that question. It's a two-week science and mountaineering immersion field school. And the idea of the program, it's sort of twofold. It's to, to expose STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, math, but also art. So there's the science component, and then there's also exposure to basic mountaineering skills and self-efficacy and confidence in the outdoors. So the culmination of the program, which is completely free from the second they step out their door till they get home to try to keep 
barrier is very low. The sort of culmination is that, uh, A, there's a mountain objective that's usually way outside the comfort zone. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure must blow some minds. People are like, whoa. <laughs> it's, it's pretty awesome. And the second part, which actually to a lot of them is even more daunting, is that they publicly at the end have to present a science project that they developed over the two weeks up there. And hundreds of people come. And it's also very scary <laughs> and really pushes them outside their comfort zone as well. So it's, yeah, it's got both prongs. And we're really, really trying to reach basically the opposite of most programs. Most programs, they look at previous achievements and, you know, that's <laughs> previous merit. And that's, that's what your participation is based on. And in this case, we're basically looking for a lack of opportunity. We have hundreds of applicants and, and there's, there's only 10 people in each program. We run three now. Then what we're looking for is is lack of previous opportunity and particularly um, underrepresented groups because, you know, the hope here, of course, is increasing diversity in, in science and, and beyond. This is not news, but there's, you know, a lot of, of quantitative evidence now that hopefully convinces everyone that diverse groups of people do better science. It is in everybody's best interest on this planet that there's more diversity in science. I feel like you should just rebrand Girls on Ice Canada to, to Allison Boot Camp because you're basically <laughs> just training up the next generation of ice core drillers for you for your next trip to the, uh, they to Mount Logan. They don't all have to become ice core scientists, but... <laughs> but ideally, like 80% of them? But like 85%. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. I mean, in, in that vein, though, what, what advice would you give the people interested in doing this kind of work? There are people established in the field who are willing to help you. I mean, this is true of anyone even wanting to get into, like, say, a sport, right? You start somewhere and you find mentors and you move toward that goal. And so I think anything is possible. And I think it's really awesome that people reach out and they, they know they can just cold call someone and be like, hey, how did you get to where you're at and where do I start? There's plenty of paths, but it just takes kind of a leap it's possible. Yeah. Like hearing you say that, I'm like, that's oh, so inspiring. I'm so psyched. But then I'm like, there is the reality of getting a PhD at MIT is freaking hard, isn't it? I'm like, geez, you know, like do it, doing the research that you're doing, it can't be that easy. Like the high altitude mountaineering is, is pretty easy and that anybody that wants to work that hard can definitely do it. Like you, you just try hard enough and, and, you know, you can get up the peak or you can build the fitness, but the academic side of it isn't quite the same way, is it? I mean, there is some degree of, of, of talent or whatever, however you want to quantify it. It's like not everyone's getting a PhD, right? Well, that's a good... Or, or do you think they could <laughs> if they just point. ground away and tried hard enough? I think I mean, as, as someone who dropped out yeah. of university, I'm sort of like, could I have finished if I tried harder? <laughs> well, it's about finding the right fit, right? I actually started in like polar oceanography and it was a terrible fit. And I left the program I was in and there's no way I could have gotten a PhD in it. I wasn't passionate about it. It wasn't the right thing for me to be doing. So, I mean, in the way you just described, like, yeah, it's easier to imagine physical things, right? You you plug away hard enough, you get the fitness, you can do it. Anyone can do it. But, I mean, in terms of academics as well, I think it's more about about finding the right fit, the thing you're actually really passionate about. And then, yes. like Find the thing that you're yeah. willing to work hard enough at because you actually like doing it. Because it's going to be hard, but yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, that's, I'm so inspired. I want to finish my education. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> one more, one more uh, um, future grad student for yeah. you to, to feed into the machine, to feed into your into your uh, drill. Uh, uh, yeah. 
what should the average person be doing to help keep the planet perpetual? People might say, oh, changes in your own life don't really add up to making a difference, you know, installing low flush toilets and doing all these things in your own home and driving an electric vehicle. And the truth is that there is a huge amount of power in that. The, the power to me, it's showing people the decisions that you're making. So if I go out and decide to make my life have a lower carbon footprint and people see that, like there is importance in, in that. So that's the other piece of it too, to do it not just for yourself and to know that you're having a low footprint, but to show others that that's a choice that, that you've made and it's important to you. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, like when enough people do something, it does start to add up and it, and it makes a difference. It does. That was the amazing ice core scientist, Allison Crisitello. I'm Alex Honnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. Catch me on the next episode when I get to speak with Guillaume Bardou and Emmanuel Perry-Bardou, the founders of Under the Pole, an underwater exploration program seeking to preserve our oceans. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the next generation of environmental innovators at Rolex.org. If you liked this episode, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment to help others discover the podcast.